it's been a long, it's been a long road. It's day 118 that I've been officially exonerated after 25 years of uh, wrongful incarceration. It's a lot. It's a lot. 25 years of uh, fighting for my liberation, physical as well as spiritual and mental. You know, it's a, it's a lot of details to it. Welcome to By Little. We're your hosts, Tamara and Courtney. We're on a mission to empower people like you. Like us. To create a future where everyone can thrive. Before we hear from the change agents on today's episode, we want to thank you for your willingness to take action. Confronting the dark, heartbreaking sides of reality takes courage, and we want to celebrate that. The landscape of truth is rugged, but it's the only place we'll find better. In this episode, we'll be talking about things like depression, anxiety, drugs, injustice, and racism. And we invite you to save this episode for another time, if that's not where you're at today. I'm a multidisciplinary artist. I can draw. I write screenplays. I taught Shakespeare. I created poetry classes. I can do spoken word poetry, public speak, what have. It's an art. Anything that's impactful to people that can inspire. That's Leon Benson, also known by his stage name, L. Bentley. Leon was a creative kid. As an artist, being an artist as early as five years old, to my recollection, doing clay sculpting. And I went on to, to draw. And I got very interested in storytelling from my early days at, at a daycare center where I encountered some great educators who fascinated me with the arts. And that eventually turned into my love for hip hop. I grew up in the 80s. I was influenced by the early pioneers of hip hop out of New York. This is the 50th year of hip hop. So I, I was on the luncheon pad of hip hop, but I, was, I grew up in Flint, Michigan, a long way from New York. But we definitely embraced the movement and I grew with it. Growing up, life was hard for Leon. He did what he could to stay afloat in a world hell-bent on keeping him down. I'm a person from urban America, from Flint, Michigan. Unfortunately, I grew up selling drugs. I grew up in, in poverty, seeing violence, things like that. And it, it had an impact on my music and my life as well. Unfortunately, I got ensnared in the fast life of fast money in the streets. Anybody know the background of Michigan? Detroit, they neck and neck with the New Yorks and the Los Angeleses and Chicago's with drug dealing. And I was definitely fascinated by those characters, the YBI, the Chamberlain brothers, the Maserati Rex, or what have you, the top dogs of Flint. And because I followed that path, I came down to Indianapolis, Indiana in 1998, not to sell drugs, fortunately, 
but to pursue a better life in a legitimate world. And I was able to get a professional painting and home renovating job here early. And I stayed here for that reason. It was a very good job for a year and a half. And I just got laid off because the work got slow. And I allowed myself to get back into life. And ultimately, it cost me my freedom because now in retrospect that I know everything that came out with all the key players within my life and the players around my case, I was standing in the middle of a, of a big train wreck. You know what I mean? Let's go back to Indianapolis circa 1998, the year that everything would change for Leon. On the morning of August 8th, a 25-year-old named Casey Shane was sitting in his truck near downtown in the early morning hours, according to the Indy Star. Five gunshots rang out, killing him where he sat. Though there was strong evidence that another man was the murderer, investigators chose to zero in on Benson. Why? The other guy wasn't cooperating, and they prioritized some witnesses over others. There were a lot of mistakes made throughout litigation, and there were deliberate acts of manipulation. Like what? The lead detective on the case didn't share the evidence pointing to the other subject with the prosecutors. He also didn't share it with Leon's attorneys. Leon was convicted in 1999 after his second trial and sentenced to 61 years. Man. The officers, you know, set me up. Because now it's out that they set me up, you know, for this case. The people around me that were close to me, they they were incompetent, right? And, and I don't say that in the sense that, that they're stupid or dumb. I was incompetent of the system myself. I was ignorant. It was just a lot of ignorance around me of the system. And those things played a key role in my wrongful incarceration. Prison was hell, and it got worse when he was wrongfully convicted again. Unfortunately, I did a decade straight in solitary confinement as well. I was sent there for allegedly being involved in a prison riot. I had no involvement in this prison riot, so I just want to give you guys some context. So... I'm in college. I'm participating in the college program at Indiana State University. I'm in the cell house studying. The guards come get me, and I'm like, why y'all getting me? If you had any doubt that the machine of mass incarceration is driven by racism... They said, man, you was in that riot that happened three months ago. And they threw me in SEG and found me guilty of participating in a riot. SEG is shorthand for segregation. Another term for solitary confinement, also referred to as the shoe. A confidential informant in prison, I didn't know they was in prison at this time, said I jumped up and down on the guard's head, but evidence is out that the Aryan Brotherhood did it. The cops said it was all white dudes. Some of the Aryan Brotherhoods even wrote me statements saying I wasn't involved. Nonetheless, my path for trauma started. Now look, 
Prison is a trauma-inducing experience no matter which way you slice it. Shit, poverty is a trauma. But the series of events that both led to and followed Leon's incarceration broke our hearts. So now, November 2001, I'm in solitary confinement while in prison for a crime I didn't commit. One. Two, I had something tragic. Somebody abused one of my family members while I was incarcerated. It was nothing I can do. This is December 2000, but it's 2001, January, now where I'm at. My father died. Later that month, my grandfather died. February, my direct appeal gets denied. Then I call home to the person who I thought supported me the most, who I thought had tens of thousands of dollars in my account, maintaining, business going, that they said they didn't have nothing. This was my moment of truth. Either I die in here, cause I'm like, wow, like serious mind in the course, serious, right? This is when I went through my deepest levels of depression, hopelessness. Like, how do I get out of here? There's no windows in the shoe security housing unit at Wabash Correctional Facility in Sullivan, Indiana. One of the worst facilities in the state, still notorious. And I just slowly tried to pick the pieces up. And it's an ongoing thing. That was the start of this 10 years. And I had to work it out while dealing with fighting my case, dealing with other family loss, dealing with just the trauma of existing in a solitary environment. We got in touch with a psychologist up in Massachusetts, Dr. Emily Crane, to learn more about the mental health impacts of incarceration. She's spent her career working with folks who have had involvement with the criminal legal system. And her research has focused on mental health disparities, the intersectionality of social justice and mental health, and community resilience. So I have the privilege of working both behind the wall, as we say, so in our supermax here in Massachusetts, and now doing work in the reentry world. And the gentlemen who I have worked with I feel really privileged that they've allowed me to be a part of their journey and to talk about their mental health. And I um, was working as a therapist both in and out. And, and so I, as I'm relaying some of their concerns, I want to just honor the fact that I'm not coming up with this. This is due to the fact that people were courageous enough to share their stories with me. So I, I just want to sort of start with that. If you don't enter prison traumatized, you're sure as hell going to leave it traumatized. The rates of PTSD for folks who are leaving incarceration is pretty astounding. And we have very little research, at least in this psychological world, around adequate treatments and how that might be different for men or women or people who don't follow along this gender binary, right? I worked with gentlemen who were in long-term segregation, which is the nice way of saying solitary confinement. And we'd have folks who will be releasing after doing 10 years in SEG. Thinking about like the sensory deprivation that you have when you're isolated for that long and then we're sending you out into the world and expecting you to function. I mean, that's absurd. 
you know, I have not experienced incarceration myself, but the folks who I have worked with have talked about the constant hypervigilance when you're incarcerated, always having to look over your shoulder and never feeling really comfortable. And so that's not just going to shed and fall away the minute that you release and go back out into the community. And so that sense of hypervigilance, that fear is very real. It's a symptom of PTSD, even if someone doesn't maybe necessarily meet criteria for the full-blown diagnosis, but that can lead to increased symptoms of anxiety, of depression. You had also, Elbeth, thank you so much for sharing your story and talk about holding on to your identity. A lot of people leave incarceration and they have to kind of redefine who they are. What does life look for them? They have to repair relationships that may have not been able to be nurtured in the way they would have wanted to when they were locked up. And so there's lots of different stressors that folks experience from finding a job to finding stable housing. And, and so, yeah, the mental health consequences are are really extreme. A truth to which Leon could very much attest. I am deeply impacted, deeply, in ways that I don't even understand. But I tell you all, uh, just to give you a glimpse. Sometimes I just, I cry. Like I got these delayed responses. I get and I see things. I process all these moments, the time I, I've been out. And it's so much going on. I, I'm just like in shock. I smile, but then I go back and reflect on it. And I just cry like, Damn, missed out on so much. No amount of money, nothing can ever repay the time that I lost. However, that being said, I try my damnness not to look back and complain. Rather than observation, yeah, it's a lot to process at some times. I can articulate it pretty good. My, my emotions and things. But everything Dr. Emily said, a prison cell in Indiana, a solitary prison cell in Indiana, is not too much qualitatively different than one in Attica or Angola or a POW camp somewhere. It's like the same stuff. So I know I suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder or post-traumatic prison syndrome. I'm suffering. We'll be right back after a break. If you're ready to learn how you can help smooth reentry for the formerly incarcerated, head over to bylittle.substack.com. When you support us by becoming a paid subscriber, you get access to all our essays. The next one, hitting inboxes on August 23rd, will be about exactly that. Leon is someone who has experienced so much injustice, so much pain, and so much trauma at the hands of a system that's supposed to protect people. How is it possible to recover from that? You can't do it alone. Emily shared some insights into how she's helped folks heal, cope, and move forward as best they can. Thanks, Albany, that you mentioned that's so important is this idea of 
you're sort of describing like this idea of like radical acceptance. Like I am in this situation that I currently in this very second cannot change, but how can I find peace within myself? So this is at least an inch manageable, right? Because when we allow ourselves sometimes to think about the gravity of how horrific this is, right? This this is just slavery continued. That is what the criminal legal system and mass incarceration is in our country. And, and when you think about all the things that you're missing out on and the memories that you haven't been able to create, I mean, that can be overwhelmingly painful and build a lot of feelings of hopelessness. And so being able to make meaning of our situation and radically accept what's not in our control can be hugely powerful for folks. It's also extremely difficult to do, right? We're asking people to somehow come to terms with these gross injustices that our criminal legal system has created. And so how can you radically accept that? And I worked with a lot of individuals who had received life sentences and they also had to sort of like redefine who they were in prison. How do I make meaning of who I'm going to be now? Because this is now my community. I won't say home because I don't think prison is ever home. But how am I going to feel like I'm making meaningful contributions in the world? For Leon, those contributions took the form of art. I was given a unique opportunity to perform inside and appear on TV in the prison for years. And so I was judged. I was able to put my art out and it to be judged. Prison, this is a hard crowd in prison, right? Hey, because, hey, if they don't like you, what you gonna do about it? I would stab you, B. I'm like, what? But I never experienced any of that. I felt blessed and I had a platform that transformed people. I seen it and I knew I still had a voice. And that is very exciting to me to be able to see one, when you, this art comes from your mind, but if you can say it in such a way or do it in such a way, it changes your environment. Your environment follows your highest thoughts. So it's times that I was in a prison cell, but I rapped or I did a spoken word or I gave a speech that allowed me to see that prison cell was a university, right? Or it's the same thing here. So I, I carry culture with me. I'm not connected to a prison, a land. I am a human being. I am an entity that's connected to the universe anywhere I go. And my art informs that. That's fucking amazing. But again, all of this cognitive work is very difficult. When you're trying to just survive in prison, when you're trying to make sure that you're not going to be victimized, when you're trying to make sure that you're not going to have officers setting you up or doing, quite frankly, just horrible abuses, to ask someone to do that extra cognitive work is so difficult, but when people are able to do it, it does reduce a lot of the suffering. The best thing that I felt that I'd done for myself was I read a lot, but I bumped into something through reading W.E.B. Du Bois, Souls of Black Folk. And it was a Ford. I, I read the book, the history, but then when I came back to the Ford, I'm like, let me read the Ford. I'm like, wow. Okay, I can't remember the guy name that did the four, but he said W.E.B. Du Bois, paraphrasing, long before European philosophers came up with the term existentialism, W.E.B. Du Bois showed how 
black slaves were able to find hope. And despite of their pain, their affliction, their trauma. And at that point, being in a situation that I was in solitary, the situation, knowing now that slavery was abolished except for people in prison, I deeply empathized with my African ancestors and what Du Bois is talking about. So I went and I said, what's this existentialism? Because we get the concept existed before it was a new name for it. And what I discovered in the existentialist doctrine, simply put, that we live in an absurd universe. And it's only humankind that gives the universe its essential meaning. And the authentic life is the life that embraces his or hers unlimited freedom of choice, right? And the life that live in dread is a life that allows circumstances and other people to make choices for them. That was profound to me because I knew that suffering is inevitable. Nobody can get out the way of suffering. But how you suffer is a choice. So I believe for me, that's when I started to climb out of that well of deep depression by making a choice is to say, you know what? Oh, I can hate the people that done the stuff that they done for me. I'm gonna make a choice to empathize with them. Not that I ain't gonna hold them accountable. Let me empathize with them. Let me see something. And I think that helped me through. And my journey became more interstellar, more of a philosophical, spiritual walk. And so I loved what you said about, I'm still going to hold people accountable. I'm going to have empathy. I'm going to try to humanize the experience. I'm going to be in touch with my own humanity, which again is hard to do when you're being caged and not treated as a human being and being able to say, okay, so how can I hold somebody accountable? How can I not lose the fact that there needs to be more in this world and keep in touch with myself? The experience of incarceration is brutal, but the struggle doesn't end there. When people leave prison, they don't step into freedom. They enter a maze of dead ends. They go from lockdown to locked out. Emily's actually done some research on the experience of reentry in the United States. Again, I first, my research would not have been possible without the amazing gentleman who allowed me to interview them and talk about their experiences post-incarceration. And as a cisgender white woman, I have so much privilege. And so I, I just really want to thank those who allowed me to come into their space and who trusted me with their stories. So I hope that I can do them justice as I describe the research. When we look at the research on reentry, at least in the psychological literature, a lot of the reentry literature and research is about recidivism and how essentially are we going to identify the folks who are going to reoffend. We have very little research on what are the actual lived and subjective experiences of those who are incarcerated and then come out. And I would argue that's way more important. 
So I used a qualitative research method. I also believe in the power of storytelling. And I, I interviewed Black and Latino men who had been incarcerated, who had come from a nonprofit organization that I was familiar with. And one of the things that was striking, and so when we think about microaggressions, these are the subtle, everyday sort of slights or occurrences that we experience for instance, a microaggression around race. It may not be somebody using the N-word. It may be somebody saying, oh, I didn't expect you to be so bright or to make some sort of passive comment that's insinuating that they're holding bias or thinking negatively about someone based on a piece of their identity. So what we know actually about microaggressions is that although these are little subtle things, and sometimes we don't even notice them at first, the research is pretty clear. As you experience microaggressions over and over again, they compound each other and they can have really tremendous impacts. There's research that associates microaggressions with suicidality, with depression, with anxiety. So I wanted to look at this intersection. So thinking about intersectionality, the intersection of ethno-racial identity, and then having the status of being formerly incarcerated. And what my research found is that folks are experiencing microaggressions all the time. And they come in a lot of different forms. Some of the most common forms is, is what we call like second-class citizenship, this idea that they're not considered fully human. And they get this message. The message is received to them through little, subtle, verbal, behavioral, and other types of, and environmental communications to them post-incarceration. And, you know, I could go on and on about it, but the takeaway line is that microaggressions are happening and they're happening all of the time. They're happening twofold based on these two marginalized identities. And we know, for instance, you come out of incarceration, you have got now you've got a felony on your quarry. Forget it. The system, the beast that it is of mass incarceration, prison industrial complex, we gestate inside its womb, and then we are birthed back to society, illegitimate to, to cope with the fast pace of what's going on, namely in technology, housing, and then with the extra stigma of having a number or a felony behind your name, all these things is hard. Then people are unempathetic to what you're going through. Time moved different. In 90 days, people were already asking me for money. I'm like, Psh, I don't even got nothing. The system didn't give me nothing. If you want to try and go back into the field that you were working in before or how hard it is to even find a job. So what are you left to do? You got to put food on the table. Like Al Bentley was saying, 90 days out, people are asking him for money. What if you have kids? What if you have a family to support? So people do what they have to do to survive. Right. And so because of this stigma related to being formerly incarcerated, in a way, incarceration begets incarceration. We don't give people the skills and the tools and the stigma is so severe that they cannot elevate to this place where they can be successful. So most folks have to return to doing what they have to do to survive. We have created an environment. So now they're going back into incarceration. So when we think about recidivism, I'm thinking, why are we worried about identifying, you know, certain factors about people? Why aren't we looking at the larger environment or, and what are we not doing to help people thrive and be successful in the community? Folks have said they need to be able to secure housing. They need to be able to get jobs. 
get their license, transportation. In Massachusetts, you get $50 when you release and they say, good luck, like $50. That's not even going to cover the bus ticket to get you back to the city where you're from. And the other thing too, is we need to have therapy and mental health resources. Most mental health clinicians look like me and that's a problem. We are white, we are privileged. We know that good work can happen in cross-racial therapeutic dyads, but it is so important that the mental health field builds platforms and pipelines for Black, Indigenous, Latino, Latinx individuals to become and get in the field and and mental health clinicians who have experience working with those who have been formerly incarcerated. Because a lot of times, unfortunately, therapists can pathologize behavior. We can say, oh, that person's being really paranoid. They need to sit in the back of the restaurant so no one's behind them. That's paranoia. No, it's not. They just did two decades in prison. They're trying to establish safety in a room, right? It's not paranoia. So we need to better train our clinicians um, on how to really effectively help people. Our social systems are failing. In the absence of any kind of institutional support, what helps people getting out of prison get back on their feet? One of the biggest things that felt like when I finally, when Laura Bazelon and Charlie Kiever Nelson, both professors and attorneys from the San Francisco School of Law, who eventually helped exonerate me, about a year before I was exonerated, I was like, I'm really finna get exonerated. It's, it's a time. So I was doing a lot of re-entry work while on the inside. So I was a healthcare worker during that time, and I dealt with re-entry, right? I was giving these classes to, to prisoners that was re-entering, that was on their way home. And it, I, it always is on my mind, and I was planning. And I seen some things like I knew that I needed stable living. I feel very lucky that my sister, Valerie Buford, is uh, my number one family supporter, and I was able to get out and come stay with her in Detroit, Michigan. It's just me and her live here. It's a very therapeutic space because Indiana, they didn't give me nothing, especially since I'm not living in the state. No compensation or nothing. So when I come to Michigan, I was able to find Team Wellness of Michigan, which is a part of government-funded re-entry program that allowed me to knock out the things I needed to knock out health-wise, get some health insurance. I got a therapist as well, and I knocked out all those things. I got my driver's license, everything within 90 days or less, and that really helped me out. And possibly, I think I will start working for them as a healthcare worker because I already had the credentials and the experience. Those are some of the ways that helped me out, but it boiled down to the people. Like my sister, very understanding of my situation. Everybody in my family isn't. Everybody in society isn't. So I came up with a, a re-entry approach to myself, a philosophy. Go where you are celebrated, not tolerated. And what I mean celebrated, if you really celebrated, Somebody would give you feedback, right? They'd say, Leon, L, 
LB, that ain't right, man. I, nah, I want you to, you got to be better than that because we love you and we want the best for you. And the second thing is proximity. In order to get to where you celebrated, you got to work with proximity. And this proximity, as I see it, as mostly a law than just a metaphysical concoction. And what I mean is, if I stay in proximity of people with good values, I'm like, this person is honest, they hardworking, they're not selfish. Hey, I need to be in proximity of that because the more that I'm around health and healing, the more likely I'll be healthy and healed. Across the country, there are nonprofits and advocacy groups stepping in to jumpstart health and healing where the government is not. Emily currently works with one such organization based in Boston. If I can give a shout out, Inner City Legal is an amazing organization that helps folks who have been formerly incarcerated and those who have maybe not been incarcerated but are affected by gun violence in the city of Boston. They're phenomenal. I'm so passionate about this work. And I actually had a lovely client who I worked with in the DOC. And he said to me one day, Emily, when are you going to get a real job? And I was like, what do you mean? This is a real job. And he was like, you're taking home a check that continues to support a system that enslaves brown and black people. This isn't a real job. And I was like, damn, you're right. And he, in that moment, really made me rethink about what, what am I doing? Like, am I really helping people by being here behind the wall in the system? And ICW has allowed me to do this re-entry work and to work with people when they're coming home and to do some prevention work. So, you know, we're not trying to work on some of this systemic racism and all of the things that contribute to mass incarceration. So I, I feel really privileged to be in the spaces that I've been in. Leon's been doing that work too. The music he's been producing, it's meant to shed light on the dark underbelly of our country's systems. The racism, the sexism, the poverty, the inequity, the persistence of historical evils like slavery in the modern monster of mass incarceration. It's also meant to be a call to action. His work calls society to do better, to be better. So the music that you got right here, Innocent Born Guilty. Innocent born guilty. Again, I'm stepping outside of myself because I want to see society and I want to tell society, guess what? You innocent too. You were innocent before you came here. You became guilty the second you was born. The second somebody assigned you a script to play, assigned you a role in gender, assigned you a particular lot because of your skin color, because of your religion, because of your geographical location and where you was born. Innocent, born, guilty to this. I want you to see, society, the things that you don't see. And I want you to see it in such a way. And with my music, this Innocent, Born, Guilty is the start. Every song, do that. That's Leon's debut album, which he recorded seven years ago. He told us about each of the tracks on it, starting with Truth Never Dies. Truth never dies. 
never die. It's only be discovered through your angel, through your demons, through your haters, through your lovers. Truth never die. It reached beyond skies like footprints on the moon. We talk about truth never dies. That's my existentialism right there. It's only be discovered. You got that song. And then innocent. Well, the shooting murderer Casey Shane told y'all I was innocent. Treating just the evidence, they judge me on my blemishes. Past life, who I was, high school, I didn't finish it. In the war on drugs, building called Vietnam, I was getting it. And drug dealing was my You got innocent. Well, I flipped the dynamics of innocent. I am innocent, but nobody is innocent, though. I'm not an innocent person. I hated before. I'm prejudiced still. I'm working on it. I'm a working process. Nobody is innocent. Stop pointing the finger. Let's work on each other. The block. The more. Look at the cell block I'm in now. No one can be in the drug game forever. The plan was to get in and get out. To make the dough, to make some real cake on the legit tip. Then you got the block, which represents me as the drug dealer it was actually a rope as a king richard adaptation of shakespeare but i put it in hip-hop so i'm sitting in the prison cell and of course i'm gonna go back to the block like i was making a little bit of money right okay but then it turned into a cautionary tale murder the world the world the world i can murder the world Look at also you have uh, murder the world, which is my rage. I need y'all to feel my rage. I need society to feel the pain. Mugabe. I'm an existential purgatory trapped inside the meadow. A black fallen angel from heaven's a ghetto. He took his freedom back from the English. Formerly Zimbabwe, Rhodesia. He the good guy. He's good. But I want to ask society the question. Would you keep pushing us in the corner? Us, I mean, it could be abused women, disfranchised kids, aboriginal people that's displaced, poverty inflicted, people that's victims of any type of abuse, of oppression, society. You keep pushing people like that in the corner and they come out swinging and they take their freedom back. But in the course of doing that, it's a madness that can take place, which what happened to Robert Mugabe because he couldn't trust because he kept being attacked. Let's say that. And I don't take away the bad stuff that brother did, but... I understand why he did it. It don't justify it, but an ounce of prevention is better than a ton of cure. Let's not see a Leon Benson in prison. Let's not see a Tookie Williams in, in, in prison or a Larry Hoover in prison, right? We don't want that. Let's Can we beat that a school to prison pipeline? Can we beat that so we don't create this Frankenstein? And Frankenstein... Is the person who made it, not the monster, America. I am America. And last, she loved me. 
Hey, what's up? This your main man's Lee Bentley 448. Hey, I'm gonna dedicate this one right here to all them real down ass queens. And then the last song you get on there, if she loves me, I got to pay her mind to all the beautiful women out there in the world. Cause I'm a lover and I'm a fighter. I fight for what I love and I love what I fight for, which is freedom. Freedom is the biggest ideal that encompasses true love. And while as a man, a male, while I'm on the inside, I didn't have a lot of women that supported me that were there. I didn't have this one big ideal lover that stayed with me. You know, I didn't have, you know, Winnie Mandela, you know what I mean, that stayed there all the way through. But I had to pay homage to the women who are there, you know, for their men when they on the inside. And I made it into something that's 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 bigger because it's not only your lover, but my sister, my mother. It's women for the most part. I'm not knocking guys that do what they do, but it's mostly women. And when I think about it, especially in terms of American slavery, I wouldn't be here without the sacrifices that our women made. The sisters, the mothers, the daughters, are overlooked, not only for doing what they do for a lot of men who don't care when they get out, they want to do something else. But I want to point this out too. A lot of women who are victims of mass incarceration, who comes in, who are inside, there's a lot of things that happen to them. We got that sterilization thing that's happening to women while they in there. Not only are the men, in this new form of eugenics, we know we we away, we can't produce. Now they being sterilized while inside. It was some practices that was happening, but women aren't supported like men are. Women who are inside. And that's a problem. And we need to talk about that issue that affects women. So please go grab my album. It's available all outlets and visit me at diegemcrow dot com slash L Bentley 448 store. Pick up a t-shirt, the Innocent Born Guilty t-shirt, the CD for a collector's item. It was built with love, a lot of determination, a lot of hope, and a lot of prayers, you know? So that record was like my love letter to the world. Obviously, you know, I'm way ahead in my artistic process. Cause I, you know, I, I recorded that seven years ago and I left it the way it was because I wanted that to be the signature. It's just like the signature of, you know, my art. I, I writ that particular piece in blood, my real blood and experience. You know, I'm ducking around trying to record this to get it out, to get free. And now the world got it and you got me and I feel blessed that I can explain this. I want anything I say. As an artist, I have a great responsibility because from my studies, it's a lot of great people. It's the poets and the artists that impact society the most, right? In the role of an artist, and, and, and I'm paraphrasing James Baldwin here, the role of an artist is that of a lover. That last part of the interview really hit me hard. Yeah, just imagining that a person who's been so 
wronged by the world around him could still write a love letter to that same world is pretty incredible. I do not believe that had I had gone through anything near what he'd gone through, the amount of injustice that he's gone through, that I could have anything close to the amount of grace that he's had that would allow me to see past my own pain enough to be able to write something like a love letter to the world. Same. It's amazing. It's, you know, I think this story, in addition to driving home all of the important points about the realities of mass incarceration and reentry, also drives home another important point, and that's when you really love someone, you're willing to give them feedback. Real feedback. And I think it's kind of poetic and beautiful that Leon cares enough about the world to, through his music, let it know that its systems are failing. Yeah, man. Between Leon's story and the anecdotes and research that Emily was able to provide us, I don't know. This episode this episode's inspiring for me. Innocent Born Guilty was produced with Die Jim Crow Records, the nation's first nonprofit record label for formerly incarcerated musicians. You can learn more about them by visiting diejimcrow.org or by following them on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or YouTube. And you can listen to Leon, L. Bentley 448 album on Spotify and Apple Music. Stay up to date on his latest projects by following him on Insta at L underscore Bentley underscore 448. Go check out Inner City Weightlifting, the organization that Emily works with too. They help people affected by gun violence, mass incarceration, and racism heal, build social capital, and establish careers in fitness and other fields. More information at innercityweightlifting.org on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you for listening. It's an honor to be working towards better together with you.